It's a delight to be here today with Aaron Van Oss, who is the brother of Lucas Van Oss, who's been on the channel several times already. <clears throat> I'm really eager to talk to Aaron. He has a background in philosophy, and you're a professor of... Yeah, not, not a professor. I'm more of a, like, a, let's say, a TA, a teacher's assistant, or assistant. assistant professor. It depends on which context you use that, but uh -huh. uh, I'm a teacher, a seminar teacher. You're, te you're teaching philosophy. Right. Yeah. yeah. And your specialty is Nietzsche? Correct. I yeah. have some questions about Nietzsche. <laughs> um, and um, there's there are a few things that I, I can say ahead of time that I'm going to ask you so you can be thinking about them. One of them is Nietzsche's hammer. Right. And um, one of them is the whole concept of forgetfulness as an active and positive force hmm. in Nietzsche. And, uh, and then the whole idea of the will to power and how that relates to free will and freedom of choice and all of that. So um, that's a little teaser for those who are just tuning in, but I wanna start with Aaron's life story and find out how he came to be someone who would end up teaching Nietzsche. <laughs> so you can right. start with your childhood, that would be good. <laughs> yeah, my childhood, yeah. I, uh, um... Well, I was sad to be without my younger brother, who most of you will now know for the first uh, four years of my life, um, during which time I, I think I was just a, always a very uh, positive, happy child, I think. Um, I'm, I, I don't think I was known to be philosophical. I think that um, that came a little bit later when I, because I was raised in a religious household, um, and I started having doubts, I think, around my teen years um strong doubt and, and this was always a bit confusing for me because i did uh i did still very much appreciate certain elements of christianity uh so let's say i was always into certain specific uh christian uh artists uh who i appreciated and even if you have doubts about, let's say, for instance, the existence of a god or something like that, it's still difficult to then say, oh, so now I no longer like the music, for instance, you know, like, so I I, I always felt drawn to, for instance, that aspect of it. And in a similar way, I uh, had simply met so many wonderful people who were Christian at that time, that it was never something I could entirely let go of. Um, and at the same time, yeah, I don't know, it, it was... I, I do think it very much formed me because I was, um, yeah, amongst friends who were all interested in, uh, you know, having, let's say, more uh, philosophical conversations. And for me, those were always centered around the meaning of, of life because that was something that wasn't self-evident for me anymore, whereas it maybe was before. Um, and I think a lot of that I found in... Um, music for that part so I uh, I became a musician I think I, st I started playing the guitar actually fairly late so I was uh, I think I was 15 years old when I started playing but uh, I had a knack for it I guess uh, which is why I went on to uh, try out writing songs uh, and then unfortunately at the end of my uh, time in secondary school I I think I went through a time of uh, what could be characterized as depression, where I, uh, where I could still find something in music, where I didn't have a very strong uh, faith, um, 
and also where I just felt very confused in terms of, okay, I'm going to start having to choose, I don't know, a kind of career path or at least what kind of program I want to follow at maybe a university or something like that. But I absolutely did not have any of the motivation for it. And I also, I, I genuinely didn't know what to do. And I, at that point I thought, okay, it's just going to be me uh, on my, like, uh, on the couch of my at my parents' place for a year or something like that like that. And, so hold, um, let, let me just ask one question. Yeah. Here. Was the um was the lack of motivation to figure out your future hmm. uh tied to the depression? Or did did the depression start because you were so uncertain about your future? I mean I think many people who have felt depressed will find it very difficult to answer that question simply because it's always such a complex of phenomena. So at the time I was already, I was also um, not in a healthy relationship uh, with my girlfriend at, at the time. So that also was an element to it. Uh, and it's really hard to say, looking back on it, how much of it was simply me, for instance, becoming more aware of the complexities of life at that age, me um, losing my faith in God, me being in a very difficult relationship and then indeed that combined with okay me not knowing what to do in the future but i do think the latter followed from the first so i think me not knowing what to do you know like some people describe feeling depressed as not even being able to see color i mean obviously mm -hmm. we all do but you don't like see the the, the 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 quality inherent in it so it doesn't so you feel somewhat indifferent to things around you um and I think that was also the regard with like, okay, why, you know, I was almost like, a, almost like an activist, like, okay, why, why should I even have to fit into this system? You know, like, why do, why is this burden all of a sudden on me right now at this age? Um, so I just, and, and, and I think that motivation would have come far more easily had I not felt the way I felt at the time. Um, and I think, yeah, what can I add to that? Um, yeah, and I've had certain like episodes of falling back into depression later, like very rarely. But when I did, I became so cynical. So it's like, so I started thinking about other people and I became so cynical about their motivations. You know, I, I, I saw everything as a power play almost. So that was always very interesting to me to then when I felt, you know, a little bit better again to see like, oh, it's, I'm genuinely unable to experience any strong positive emotion except for that which is fleeting let's say for maybe a moment um and at the, at the time i was very grateful for my uh dad because he um had gotten a job in Dumb uh, in dublin um but he was only going to be working there let's say uh or he, he only had to be there once every two weeks so for him it was already gonna gonna be necessary to book a hotel every two weeks so he was like okay we're going to find something for you in Dublin. And then, you know, I'll take care of the rent, but then I can stay over at your place when we're there. Uh, and then we found this uh, music program. So I did, uh, yeah, I actually managed to achieve like a songwriting degree in that one year that I spent in Dublin. And I think that's definitely what I needed. It was still a very difficult time. I was very, um, very much by myself a lot of the time, but that was also so sometimes very generative. And I did a lot of, songwriting then um you then also notice like let's say who are your 
close friends because um, there were several people who visited me and that's always different than the everyday quality of uh, secondary school um, and I think yeah I think I let's say went through a process of individuation that uh, was barred uh, a little bit previously so that was a very uh, a very formative experience for me but I also knew that when I was then um, a musician I was still interested I, I, I remained interested in these bigger questions that sort of had haunted me um, since I more or less had I don't know stopped believing in God is always such a big word but uh, definitely God wasn't so present let me put it that way um, and that's why I became interested okay I do want to go to university but I don't want it to be defined yet so I um, went on to do a liberal arts program in the, at the university college uh, Roosevelt which is in Middelburg it's a very small let's say a uh, fisher's town in the Netherlands um, they call it like a, a small Oxford almost it's really uh, it, it's very beautiful if you are if you're ever in the, in the Netherlands I can recommend you go but it's also very boring like I actually lost basically I, I almost felt more distanced from uh, my friends than when I was in Dublin because it's so sort of at the other side of the Netherlands um, and at that time I was like okay now I need to really I don't know it was like a new beginning for me and I need to figure out who I am. And I thought I was going to be either a historian or an economist. I don't know why, but it just felt like, okay, now I really have to commit, even though I don't like it. And then I noticed fairly quick, quick, quickly, okay, I'm not going to be an economist. I'm going to be an historian. And then while doing um, history, I ended up taking one philosophy course. And this really surprised me because it was... Uh, I don't think I ever knew, like there was already a possibility to study history in secondary school and I never did. So I'm not sure why I missed out on that. And when I took my first course, it was like this feeling of liberation, like, oh, okay, wait, we're, this is the place where I can rethink all those, all those questions, but not, um, but in a very new way. So that, that's also why it's rethinking. It's not, it wasn't so much tied to, okay, now I have to go, let's say, for instance, back to church and have to submit to something that I feel is behind me. But I genuinely felt like I could do this in a new way. Um, and I think I did so at a time from an, like an unbeliever's perspective. But the interesting thing was that my professor at the time, he was, he was an American and he, um, he also had grown up in a religious household. But he was traumatized by, it. let's say, like he was, he took like the John Favakia route, but then to full on resentment against Christianity. Um, and that was always interesting to me because then I felt that he would sometimes, and this, this was part of his work, he would criticize Christianity almost in a way that was extreme to us in the classroom because, well, most of us were just atheists. So it's more like, you know, we didn't care. It wasn't an issue for us. We weren't like emotional about religion, but obviously I was in some ways. Um, so when I noticed his criticism against Christianity, I was like, well, this is not fair. This is not the Christianity I grew up with. So all of a sudden I got drawn back into like, okay, but is this really the Christianity? And then at some point, one of the authors we, we read was uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who and that was just very difficult for me to read, but also very eye-opening because when I first started reading Nietzsche, I was like, okay, this person actually understands Christianity and he's criticizing it. Uh, so that felt much more of a blow than everything else before. 
But I think there's something, and this is also, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's part of what I argue for in my work. And I think this started already, like I had an uh, inclination of this, is that Nietzsche is actually far more appreciative of Christianity than is often um, seen. It is a very complex relationship and he is also arguing against it, but he's also very much appreciative of it. Um, and I think I already felt that at the time because I was like, why is he so obsessed with these questions? He's not like a simple, you know, um, he, he doesn't simply dismiss it. He's more like, you know, he, he's also talking to all the unbelievers, like you have not realized what you've done. Like This is going to be the end in some ways of our morality, of our whole conceptualization and valuing of truth. So we need to be very careful of what we do next. And I think that always spoke to me that I was like, okay, I need to be aware of what I'm going to, let's say, miss out on if I'm genuinely going to pursue this um, atheist, I'm not sure what the right word is, but this route of rejecting Christianity. And by being so concerned with it, I actually became interested in it again. And also I noticed that there were, like, that's another aspect of philosophy. We just discussed so many um, questions that you can rethink, for instance, questions concerning the existence of God or a uh, question concerning morality that are not simply from um, an empirical scientific perspective, because at that time I thought that was basically all there was. Uh, and then I knew like, okay, there's actually far more ways of thinking about uh, God's existence. And that, I guess, opened the door for me like, oh, okay, now I'm definitely not an atheist. I'm like agnostic. I allow for the possibility. And then I guess the Nietzschean aspect got me emotionally engaged again and got me desiring to like, yeah, what do I want to do with this? So that's just a brief summary. And then I studied that, uh, went on to do a master's uh, and started teaching at that university at Utrecht. Um, and that's where I'm still teaching right now. And I have done some research, I've done some talks, uh, and uh, at least uh, I I've managed to, pu to publish one article. But I want to hopefully uh, turn this into a research project, which is why I'm now on the lookout for that while being very busy with teaching. So that's uh, <laughs> a short summary of my life until now. Wow. So what was the topic of your master's thesis? Or, I mean, do you do a master's thesis in yeah. the Netherlands? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, the topic, I think the, the, the title of my thesis was um, The Pious Antichrist, Nietzsche as a Religious Thinker. That was the topic of my master's, master's thesis. For the people who are interested, I think you can find it online somewhere. So, uh, <laughs> right. Nietzsche as a Religious Thinker? Is that the last yeah. part? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. The pious antichrist, Nietzsche as a religious thinker. You know, I'm so far behind the wave because when I was in college, Nietzsche was kind of the in, the in thing, but mm. I didn't take that class. All my friends mm. took that class and they're all waving Nietzsche stuff around and they're all really mm. high on Nietzsche and, and uh, convinced that there's no god and god is dead and i mean they kind of took nietzsche the other way probably because yeah. they weren't very mature thinkers but um i was such an immature thinker i didn't even bother to study I, I had one philosophy class in college but i found the whole thing so utterly boring yeah. and it might have been my teacher but right. um the way that he introduced the different, you know, he was kind of just giving kind of 
surface introduction to each philosopher. And then he would tell a little bit of their life story. And it seemed to me like every one of these guys ended up either insane or committing suicide. And why would I want to know what they thought? And so I right. just tuned out and fell asleep. Yeah. I guess because I wasn't interested in the big questions at that point in my life. I mean, I grew up in a household that was devoid of God and church and everything else. And, but also not, not actively against anything, not actively for anything. It was just sort of an empty household. So I didn't have any sort of framework to rebel against or to be for. So I just sort of floated through the hippie years. <laughs> right. <laughs> without any thinking. So I look yeah. back on that now and I think, wow, I wasted, I wasted so many years. Well, I, I like I, I I genuinely do think that Nietzsche is also not for everyone. Uh I I don't necessarily think it's a good idea to popularize Nietzsche. He didn't think that was necessarily gonna be a good idea. Like he is also very careful about like don't necessarily follow what I do. Um there was even there was even one story that uh there was this catholic lady that he at some point met and uh the story recounts this is what a friend of his says about him that he actually with with tears in his eyes told her like please don't read my work you know like he he didn't want her to uh be confronted with what we what he had to say about it so there's also something to be said why those people came away with that impression because and that's something i do argue like there's also lots in Nietzsche's work and, and actually more of it in some ways that will indeed lead one to conclude that he was an, let's say, an antichrist, let's, that, 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 he, that he was very critical of religion. But I would also say, like, uh, just to add to what you were saying in terms of philosophers and madness, because I completely agree, I think it's also a sense of um, the tragedy that does appeal to me. So I'm, I'm fairly... Um, concerned about people who are Nietzscheans. Uh, I don't consider myself a Nietzschean. Um, but at the same time, I believe that there is like, let's say, you know, shadow integration kind of aspects to these thinkers. And that's for the same reason that people are uh, are drawn to shows like Breaking Bad, where they see just, you know, this this breakdown of a character in which they also become more more powerful and more interesting. So you and you have the same with the the Sopranos to a certain extent. So there's all these American TV shows of these characters where you both increasingly admire them as you continue watching their behavior and their thoughts and their ideas. But you're also like, right, okay, I don't want to end up where they end up. So it, it's like both teaching you a story of what not to do and maybe also part of it, okay, but this is what you can integrate from it. And that's really very much how I look at Nietzsche. So I totally agree with you that the Nietzschean path is not one to follow, uh, maybe for a few individuals, but I even doubt that. But yeah. <laughs> well, so you had pointed me to a video, which I'm going to put in the description section because it's it's really very good. It's a, it's a video by Dallas Willard where he's talking about Nietzsche and then contrasting Nietzsche and Jesus Actually, he spends most of the time talking about Nietzsche, but mm -hmm. then he does say at the end of the day, um, which path, which path leads to fulfillment? And he said, mm -hmm. find me someone who is truly a Nietzschean, who has lived as Nietzsche taught we should live, who has has been fulfilled. We'll leave that question open for now mm -hmm. until we get to it later. Um, right. But um, one of the things that 
so I said at the beginning that there were there are three questions I wanted to talk about. One is Nietzsche's hammer. And uh, I want you to explain that and then we can talk mm-hmm. about the idea. And then another one is this idea of choice and free will. There's a lot that wraps around that, including the whole idea of freedom. And then finally, the idea that forgetfulness is an active and positive force. So um, let's start with Nietzsche's hammer. And why don't you explain, first of all, what Nietzsche's hammer is? Yeah, this is a very good question, because I think it's often been misinterpreted simply by what we associate with a hammer. You know, like if we so Nietzsche called himself the philosopher with a hammer, which is also why the book in which he explains that passage, it's uh, Twilight of the Idols or How to Philosophize with a Hammer. Um, and that suggests that Nietzsche is out to destroy stuff, you know, like he'll take a hammer and he'll just destroy stuff. And that's often how he's taken to be. And there's something to be said for that because he's very polemical in his text. But when he introduced the metaphor, he actually says it's more like, you know, uh, a hammer that you use. I, I, I'm not sure what the English word would be, but I, but where you um, place it on let's say like clocks for instance and hear whether or not it's it's hollow or not so you can kind of hear like as as he starts to look at let's say certain idols of the culture so he'll in that book he'll look at people like socrates like napoleon just all these very famous individuals but also certain values and he'll just see like is there actually something here or is it hollow and so the it's more like 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 a tuning fork almost, you know, like that that that'll hear like okay, what is actually the sound that this makes, um, and by doing so, I think he he gives the st- strong implication. This very characteristic of Nietzsche's thought is that none of these things are necessarily eternal. So um, he's not saying nothing is eternal. He's just saying be very careful with assuming that things are eternal. That it's just as simple that okay, we have justice and justice is just eternally good it's like well actually justice has also been very let's say situationally constructed in uh, certain eras and then been defined differently in other eras so we need to be very careful in terms of how we value something like justice because it might be that it made a full lovely sound at first but now it will maybe sound hollow and maybe there's not so much there anymore so that's really what he's looking at and that's why he's philosophizing with a hammer because he's just, you know, he'll take a subject matter or an individual and he'll just like poke it from all these different sides to just kind of see like what remains. And interestingly enough, sometimes something remains. And that's, I think why that's also good because in that same year, he also released the book, The Antichrist. Uh, and in that book, he just, uh, well, he does kind of destroy Christianity in some ways, but he has such profound admiration for the person of Jesus. So that also shows that he in some ways like he used the hammer and he's like okay i could tell that in the development of christianity and there's something to be said for this because the shape christianity had taken in the 19th century is something that many of us would reject today Uh, and he finds that it's hollow but there's something there at the core of it that he's like okay that's pure and that's actually close to the ideals that he also set out himself so uh, i hope that kind of explains the concept yeah, yeah. So um, the way I heard it described one time was that that um, when found, foundries would make a brass bell, like for a church, right? Yeah. Um, oftentimes they couldn't tell if there was a flaw in the in the brass or the or the mm. iron iron. What brass is made of iron and tin? 
I think so. Copper something, something like that. But there can be a flaw without being able, without it being visible. Hmm. And, uh, and so then if they get, if they go to all the trouble of installing it in the belfry and everything, and it's got this flaw, then, then, um, what are you going to mm. do about it? You know, because right. bells are massive. So they had a little hammer that they would strike it with. And then exactly. if, if they strike it just right, mm -hmm. the crack will show up and then they would know, okay, there mm -hmm. is a flaw. And, right. um, and so when I was thinking about this, I'm wanting to ask you about it. One of the topics that came to my head was the idea of weakness and strength mm -hmm. because, um, you know, Jordan Peterson's always going on about um, a lot of things rel relative to weakness and strength. And he he was a great reader of Nietzsche. I wouldn't say he's a Nietzschean by any case, but, but he certainly read Nietzsche, appreciated him. Hmm. And I think there's something about both weakness and strength that have this kind of polar you could look at weakness from both sides. You can look at strength from both sides. Okay. And I kind of wonder how it was that Nietzsche would look at those things. And, and here's the reason I'm asking. Um, when I was younger, I read Ayn Rand. When I first read Ayn Rand, I got really mad and I threw the book at the wall. <laughs> In later years, I read Ayn Rand again. And I thought, well, there's something there. Um, oh. I read her before I was a Christian. And then I read her again after I was a Christian. And it seemed to me that she had a deep misunderstanding of what Christianity is. Because she understood Christianity from the perspective of um, kind of the way I hear Nietzsche talk about um, the, we the weakness aspect, mm -hmm. that it's weak and that um, it it um, glorifies weakness and mm -hmm. it glorifies altruism. But the kind of altruism that she was talking about is not what I see as altruism, like in the church and uh, the actual generosity of God and the generosity of his people, but a kind of altruism that puts the, onus on others to prove that they're being Christian enough by, by giving enough and, and creating mm -hmm. this kind of um, atmosphere of guilt around everything. Right. And so mm -hmm. it seems to me that Nietzsche might have a way through of, of kind of using the hammer to kind of dig into that and figure that yeah. out. No, I, I think that that's an excellent point. Yeah. It, it, he does also have issues with um, let's say the conceptions the glorifying of weakness that is brought about, but mostly by how um, in certain understandings of Christianity and for his part, this was already also happening, let's say in secularized morality. So he'll similarly criticize, for instance, socialists. He also saw, thought that socialists acted very much in the same manner um, by trying to emphasize, okay, he, he kind of looks at the history of these conceptions of, let's say, good and bad and he noticed that you know good was just meant as a sort of it was used as a positive self-evaluation so if people were good it was like okay you're good compared to something bad it's like uh you could be good at cooking or you could be bad at cooking there was not necessarily like let's say a moral aspect to it 
Um, and he notices, like he'll make the comparison with uh, birds of prey and little lambs. And he says, like, you know, like the birds of prey, they're good at what they do. Like, you know, when they're hungry, they just eat. It's like there's nothing evil about it. They just do what they do. Um, but he makes the point that if you then have a group of people, and he compares this with uh, the, 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 the lambs, um, they're not so powerful. They're not as powerful as the birds of prey. So they're just being eaten. And they can't do anything about it. They can't eat the birds of prey. They just have to endure it. And he says, what actually happens in this case is that you get a group of people who just start, who, like, and this, this actually relates to your later question about the will to power. They nonetheless will want to, in some ways, express some kind of grip on reality. Like they can't accept this state of complete powerlessness. So what they'll do is they'll actually start conceptualizing. And his point is, this is when they'll start kind of having these feelings of revenge against the people who are powerful. And if they have revenge against people who are powerful, the way to then talk about them would be like, okay, you know, they're actually evil. So from the lamb's perspective, the bird of prey is actually evil, even though from the bird of prey's perspective, the bird of prey is good. And the lambs are just bad because they're not as good as bird of prey. But from the lamb's perspective, they're not bad. They're evil because they could not do this, but they choose to eat us. And if they're evil, and if we're not doing what they're doing, then we're good. And the problem Nietzsche saw with this was that, okay, you can kind of see, okay, there's obviously something to be said. There is something awful about, let's say, uh, violence and uh, eating other, uh, well, creatures in some ways. Um, but at the same time, there's also something very dangerous about, okay, I don't want any of that because I associate that with being evil. So... I can only be good if I stay weak, like if I don't become like them. And then you see how that then gets taken up by, let's say, categories within socialism, which is something that Nietzsche was very critical of. Is like, okay, you have these powerful people in society. They are evil and we are good because we are not them, you know? So therefore, we're also going to stay weak. We're going to just, you know, just conceptualize them as evil. And if we do that, then maybe we can harbor enough revenge against them to eventually overthrow it. So he actually says, like, there's something dangerous about this, because if taken in the wrong way, you know, that sense of weakness will actually end up tyrannizing at some point. Um, and that's also why he was sort of a proto-psychoanalytic uh, uh, thinker. But I think to your question, because I think it's very right that you'll point this out, this is not actually our experience of how Christians, uh, for instance, like there can be a bunch of other people think about the Good Samaritan, um, conceptualize their goodness. So sometimes you have that feeling that, okay, you know, I, I like they, they stay weak on purpose because they fear being seen by others in a negative way. But what Nietzsche is really trying to, to point at is that, okay, something was lost in that time. We can't return to it because now we've We've, we've gotten basically too complex as creatures. Like we started intellectualizing stuff, which is what the, the lambs did in his little story. So we can't just return to this older state where we were like, let's say birds of prey or where some people were birds of prey. Um, but nonetheless, there was something good about that because they were just evaluating themselves. They were just like good with regard to themselves. And if they wanted something, they took it. And there's something healthy about that because they just immediately follow, let's say what they want in some ways. Um, and that's why he was very 
concerned that now there's a morality that is rising up, which is like, actually don't follow what you want. If you have certain tendencies, if you want to become powerful in any way, don't follow that. Just negate that. Just stay weak in some ways. But I think indeed to your point is like, yeah, okay. But we also know uh, many famous uh, Christians throughout. And I think many of us who have been in Christian communities, we've found other people who are not so resentment driven towards powerful people. They actually find that positive self-evaluation because they feel fairly motivated in in this self-evaluative way to be good and not just be good in comparison to other people who are evil, but really be good in comparison to themselves and to their own potential. Um, and that's and that actually approaches something that Nietzsche was uh, much more a fan of. So there's something to be said for that he is severely criticizing our, our evaluation of weakness, but it really depends on how we look at weakness and if that weakness is also paired with resentment of some sort. Because that's really the weakness that he was very much concerned about. And I do sort of agree with that aspect of it. But I'm curious how you look at that. Well, I, the story that sticks out to me from uh, Atlas Shrugged, which was mm -hmm. Anne Rand's 1400 page. Yeah. Um, in many ways, a very prophetic book, I think. Mm -hmm. um, although it seems to me that she must have been a... a follower of Nietzsche in actually mm -hmm. believing his concept of will to power, because what she lays out as the ideal individual is somebody who is actually motivated simply by their own ability to exercise their self-will mm -hmm. in a, in, in strength and, and yeah. uh, but a, a productive, in a productive sense, she tries to give it the best version that you can, but, mm -hmm. um, the, the story that sticks out to me from that book, though, is the story of this guy who was one of the builders, one of, I, I think he was the one that had the steel plants. Uh, Hank Reardon had developed this kind of steel that was his own invention hmm. and so much superior to everybody else's. And of course, because of that, all the competition came in and said, that's not fair. You know, all the other companies said, that's not fair. We need to get the government to limit him because the rest of us ought to have an opportunity. So it's this little weak kind of, you know, it's not fair. We can't keep up with him. So you, you have to press him down so that we can, you know, keep up. And then he had this family, his wife and his children, who were like, you're always working and you don't really care about us. And if you really cared about us, you'd come home earlier and if you really cared about us, you'd get us a nicer house. And if you really cared about us, you would treat us better. <laughs> and so they're the weak, the the weak people. Um, they're the representation of the weak who are self-righteous in their weakness, self-righteous in their desire to tear him down because he represents this unmitigated strength. And um, of course, she paints these people with a very broad brush. It's very simplistic in many ways. There's not, there's not a lot of nuance in any of the characters, but it does point out very clearly this problem, mm -hmm. which I think is a problem that, that you said Nietzsche, Nietzsche is talking about, how this, this weakness can turn into such a, a vengeful, and I mean, I kind of see that happening in the world today. There are so many people who have considered themselves oppressed, but it's now becoming 
this very vengeful retributive mm -hmm. um, active force that's going to blow up someplace, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, you can imagine just today, like so many people's people like sitting behind their laptops or, or computers and just, you know, being uh, rageful on the internet, but not actually doing something. So like, so obviously that's going to be their out output because that's, that's where they feel they do have some control and something to say, but while doing so, they actually will over time notice like, okay, this is actually not a useful output of, let's say the life energy that, that I have. Uh, and therefore, like if they're not careful, you know, they might they might uh, join a protest and uh, they might wear, uh, I don't know, like a full on mask and not be recognizable and be surprised by how much rage they feel. And like and they might hit someone because they've actually built up so much resentment over the years mm -hmm. that that's then all coming out. And that's uh, but they would be too scared to do that, um, let's say, face to face to someone Um without the mask on because they have never built up that self-confidence they could only do it like let's say from the veil of a mask of understanding themselves to be good but they would not allow for instance to build themselves up in such a way that they could let's say really positively evaluate themselves and i do also see the the let's say the risk of individualism in nietzsche i think there's some ways of going against that, but, and that's their two and Ayn Rand. It's really like, okay, so we mm -hmm. need to be strong individuals. That's also definitely also has its uh, downsides. Well, so let's play the Nietzsche versus Jesus game then. <laughs> given this, given this problem with the people sitting behind their, their laptops and mm -hmm. letting their rage out that way, potentially maybe getting out on the street. And, you know, we, we see this problem arising. So what would be Nietzsche's solution to that? And what would be Jesus solution to that? Um, I, I find this really rough because like also I would then also need to distinguish let's say between Jesus and the church because I would say like from the church perspective you'd be like you'd have to come to church you just have to join a community and you have to uh, feel what it's like to be amongst people um, Jesus solution I, I would find that so difficult like I don't know I I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm able to actually do justice to whatever would be the solution there but I do know like what is always inspiring about an individual like he was, was that he was both, you know, let's say sitting down with uh, uh, tax collectors and with prostitutes. So like, it's like, he's the most <laughs> extreme right wing and the most extreme left wing kind of uh, guy to like meet up with both those people. So it does show that he is willing to just sit down with someone and have a conversation Um so I think in some sense, that is the Jesus perspective is to just treat these people as human beings. And that's the easiest thing is to just treat them. I think as Chloe Valdery, like she, she also says like, don't treat me as a political abstraction. I'm not that right. I'm, I'm a full fleshed human being and treat me that way in the first place. So that's, I think what, um, what Jesus would do. The problem with Nietzsche is that he's like, he would want you to want it yourself. And otherwise he's like, like as 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 soon as Nietzsche starts caring, but this is always difficult because Nietzsche is like, let's say, a split up personality. And in my work, I'm arguing for both sides, but he's often taken to be just this one side, which is very anti-Christian and stuff. Um, <clears throat> but in that in that side of him, he would be not interested in helping out other people in that way, unless it would make yourself more powerful. Then it can be 
useful, but otherwise it would be of no interest. So to that person, I don't know, it would just be not interesting, but I'm not sure. Maybe you're asking what would be the Nietzschean thing to do for that person? Is that what you're asking? Well, I'm, I'm selfishly thinking more of society as a whole. How do we keep our society from disintegrating right. given, given this I mean, I, it's very complicated to even talk about, right? Mm -hmm. So, the the a lot of the um, I don't I don't want to use the word I don't want to use the words that are typically used to describe this problem <laughs> mm -hmm. because they're all in, in insufficient. But some people use the word postmodern. Some people use the word woke to discuss what's happening mm -hmm. in the world today that's wrapped around. The, the problems with power and whether or not the world is constructed, whether or not the world is socially constructed or constructed around power or um, that, that uh, argument that's going on in the culture about power and um, is why there seems to be this way of looking at the world as people who are, um, powerless or oppressed and the people who have power and the people who oppress others categorizing everything through that lens rather than seeing mm. that um you know i mean even nietzsche's little story about the the bird of prey and the lamb at least shows you that there's two sides on on both sides you know there's a lot of sides right. everything is just way more complicated mm -hmm. um, but given this lens that's being disputed right now in the public arena um it seems like the world is going to fly apart if we don't find some way to get people to sit down and talk to each other right get people somehow to recognize that there is value in the other and that um and to recognize well i mean obviously you say go to church yes because one of the great things about church is you end up in church with people that you ordinarily wouldn't have anything to do with. I mean, mm -hmm. not that they're bad people, but they're just not the people that are in your circle. But then you end up in church and, oh, here's somebody that I would never have gotten to know otherwise. And and then mm -hmm. you sit down and you talk, oh, they're real people, you know. So, I mean, that is one of the real values of being part of a church, I think. Right. No, I, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I also noticed, like, when... Um... When let's say you know I my I was struggling with my belief in God, which to a large extent I obviously still am because I'm a philosopher, so it's always a question to me in some ways. But um, I always noticed that okay, but what is going to be the alternative for church? You know, like it, it's really difficult to see. I was like maybe you know sports clubs, but even that doesn't seem to quite cover indeed the the just the vast diversity of people actually coming into an institution. And I mean indeed diversity, not just in the sense of do we have enough different sexual orientations or enough different skin colors, but genuinely different people. Um, because that that's, can be a risk of diversity is having people that look different, but actually have, for instance, all the same opinions on certain matters. And that's definitely been interesting in uh, the church, especially. But I also think in, in, in several other religions is that, you know, the religion is so old that it 
you know, if it has survived until this day, it has to allow for diversity of opinion. Otherwise, it would have fallen apart at this point. Um, and therefore, you see all this, even though, like, you know, most people that go to church agree on the fact, like, okay, there's God and Jesus, and they're basically good. <laughs> I put it that way. Um, they still hold vastly different opinions about so many societal matters, which is actually a very positive thing, because in many, let's say, political movements, they're about now. You know, like they're so they'll they'll be uniting people much more on uh, things we have to agree on today and not so much, you know, all the diversity of opinion we have in certain ways. And that is actually that holds the risk of building up resentment to other political movements. And that will be far more different, uh, difficult in, let's say, a religious tradition that has been um, around for a couple of thousand years. I would also just add that I think there is like, let's say, a Nietzschean solution to society i'm not saying it's necessarily the good one but he always very much appreciated um the religion of the ancient greeks so he looked at especially like let's say in uh in attic greece so like in the at, at the time of homer so before all the philosophers came in he actually uh i think he still really appreciated heraclitus but after that like with socrates and plato it all went downhill um but according to him they had this very meaningful, like almost like opponent processing in that language that uh, John often uses of uh, the god Apollo and the god Dionysus. And it's like Dionysus, you know, like it was this very extreme, much more the god of the passion, of uh, of, of, of of drinking, of, of extravagance. And then you have um, Apollo, who is much more like the, 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 the god of like, clean outline so there it's, it's much more separation but in a very useful way and this is actually in mcgillchrist in his book um he says this is actually a very useful model to look at the best interaction of the left and the right hemisphere where the left hemisphere is more apollonian and the right hemisphere is more dionysian just very useful way of thinking about it and he says like okay so you had these two ideals but they were constantly like challenging and in a way that they would reinforce each other. So it's not like one would win over the other. But then his point is that as soon as like, let's say Socrates came about and there was, it was almost like, okay, it became more unified, but in, according to Nietzsche, like let's say uh, a negative way, because it, it was like, okay, all of life, we need to hold that to a standard. And for Socrates, there was like to ethical thinking. So he says like, when are you happy? When you're virtuous, you know, when are you virtuous? When you're truthful. So it's like all of these are interrelated to this one um, value that is above it, which is also eternal in some ways. And that's then even worked out in more detail by Plato. Uh, and to some extent, we can see that Christianity, when it comes about, according to Nietzsche, it has this risk of also just keeping it with this one value. Whereas according to him, it's really good to have, let's say, more opponent processing. So I take his whole project to be that he's looking for a way to create opponent processing again to really be like okay yes the christian value is an important one many people will think that this is nonsense that this is not a nietzsche but there are so many passages also in his personal letters where you can see that he profoundly values the christian value but he is concerned that by itself it has gone so strong that it ended up denying itself in some ways you know like that's something that uh jordan often talks about it's like okay you know like it it ended up valuing truth so much that it started questioning oh why do we value truth and you know does god actually really exist and maybe god doesn't exist and then you know the whole fundament uh 
uh, for truth has basically slipped away and the same for the fundament for morality. And he says, like, this doesn't happen if you have something that is constantly challenged by something else, which reinforces one another. So I, I take his whole project to be like, OK, I'm basically going to uh, attack Christianity almost to bring out its its best aspect in some ways. So I think to that person, and that's a problem we have of today, we can argue whether there is only one value, which could be power. You know, like if we look at it from the postmodern perspective, it's like, okay, it's just power and that's the whole understanding we have of society. Or whether we have so many different values that they're no longer in opponent processing. They're just kind of, you know, it's just kind of a, a weird polytheism without any clear strengthening of one another, but just people that no longer talk to each other. So it's like, you know, that they have no understanding of it. So he would, for that individual, he'd be interested in like, okay, what's your highest value? And let's bring that into competition with a different value so that it can constantly reinforce itself and that it can also be reinforced. Uh, it can reinforce the other value. So that's sort of a more communal. Well, does, doesn't that community. run into the problem of uh, like, doesn't that become a dialectic? Um, well, it depends. It depends. What do you mean by dialectic? Like there have been many oh. uses of the word dialectic. Um, yeah. Well, okay. So, this is so interesting because because we've landed kind of in in the wheelhouse where my idea about art and creativity just falls mm. right in this spot. Um, yeah. But if if you have the one crystalline value, but then you always want to bring it into question against another value, its opponent. Um, my understanding of of uh, and like I said, I am totally not a philosopher. I don't really no, no, know yeah. what I'm talking about, but yeah. but that you have these um, you have these opposites. They come into a synthesis, and then the synthesis creates a right. new thing that you have to fight yeah. against. And so you're constantly in this battle. Yeah. Um, with, but 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 that's also kind of I, I think it's Wolfgang Smith who talks about what we basically did was. Um, turn the escalator into a kind of just knocked it over on its side. So it's no longer going up. Mm -hmm. We're just progressing mm -hmm. towards something. We have no idea what we're progressing towards, right. just progressing towards the future, but there's nothing mm -hmm. higher. Right. Yeah. But um, my pick, when you started talking about the, the, um, the, the Greek, like Dionysian the, and Apollo versus Dionysus yeah. Yeah. versus the idea of Socrates with the the pushing everything towards this perfect um thing that you have to kind of fit mm. inside of. Um when I look at this from the standpoint of the principles that that have been recognized as those which create beauty and truth and goodness in art they're not um it wasn't something human beings came up with it was just something that they recognized as they look at mm -hmm. art and they look at what people are drawn to they recognize oh there are certain principles at work here and those principles almost all have this binary sense to them uh, kind of an opponent mm -hmm. processing so you can have things that are always in this kind of a tension but it's a in a way, it's a loving tension between the between the two extremes. So um, large and small, 
you know, um, dark and light, um, speaking artistically. Mm. Um, so there are certain elements that the that a work of art or the world are put together with, and those are, I've said them over and over again, everybody's getting sick of this, but line, size, shape, direction, color, value, and texture. Everything's composed of those elements. Yeah. But then those elements are have great potential for variability based on a set of principles that kind of are you could call them guides or or uh, supports or maybe some kind of uh, graphic representation of or projective geometry or something with all these lines that intersect. The principles are unity, harmony, contrast, repetition, mm. variation, gradation, balance, and dominance. Mm. <clears throat> and those you can look at from a wide spectrum so repetition you could have no repetition all the way to just constant repetition or you could have um complete imbalance all the way over to solid balance anywhere along that spectrum so if i let's take any particle in the universe that particle is in a particular place and it's involved in a certain level of repetition with a certain um, aspect of unity and whether or not it's creating harmony, it's an environment or what the resonances are. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine every one of these spectrums has a point along it at which that particle is engaged, but they're all connected to each other. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all these principles working together so that every particle in the universe is unique. Every thought that we have is unique every um hmm. every stroke on a painting is unique because that stroke is contributing to the unity or the harmony or the contrast or the dominance or the repetition or the variation or the gradation or the balance of the whole piece but what that gives you is this beautiful display of um potential for everything so it's not you're not locked into one thing you can yeah. have beauty truth and goodness but that is also composed of all these other things and yeah, yeah. many places you can land on that spectrum i don't know if that makes any sense no 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 yeah I, no, I it, it in my actually, head i just can't explain it no no it's, it's actually fantastic because i i think <laughs> that's also like let's say in the best uh reading of nietzsche he also says like you know the the opponent processing it allows for like let's say you 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 pull this tension more to the side by which you allow for more potential like let's say because otherwise it's too narrow and you mm -hmm. know things become stagnant in some ways mm -hmm. but if you need like if you can stretch it out uh, mm -hmm. and i think we recognize that this one we um let's say grow and evolve in our individual lives we're also trying to like really stretch out our potential in some ways that we can both um you know, people who are introvert, they need to stretch out becoming more extroverted or mm -hmm. people who are too extroverted, they need to stretch out also being able to be by themselves. So I think that's actually a wonderful illustration of that. And that might be a pattern that is so wide that, we re that it recurs <laughs> on every aspect of the universe. And that, I also that's think that's kind like, of what I think. I think it's what lies underneath yeah. the physical laws. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And and I think someone like uh, Pachot, he will argue that what Nietzsche 
maybe misses out on is that in an individual like Christ, you have a reconciliation of these opposites. So it's not like, you know, the opposites are gone. It's just like they're indeed reconciled under one higher motive. Um, and that doesn't imply that they become unified in that sense. But to Nietzsche's point then, okay, but in our historical understanding of Christianity, there's still a lot of it which is nonetheless sort of, you know, becomes more stagnant and becomes less flexible. And it's actually like, no, everything needs to be this way. We need to understand everything this way and not also its opposite. So I think there's something to be said for both. It just depends on which aspect of Christianity we're looking at. And even for that regard, which um, aspect of reality we're looking at. But I think it's amazing what you just laid out. And I would also say art was profoundly important for Nietzsche because uh, for him, art was this way of seeing like, so he would problematize our valuing of truth a little bit. He would say like, okay, you know, we want truth at the expense of everything else. And maybe that's a little bit of a problem because sometimes maybe truth is not good for you. And that's also because of his definition of truth. Because he says like, if you look at art, you know, art is, it's, is, is a lie. Like it's, it, it's, 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 it's deforming certain aspects of reality, but it's so much more valuable than certain aspects of reality. So he's saying like, sometimes we need certain lies, but then it depends on what you mean by lying or by truth. But I think there's something to be said, like we shouldn't always, and that's also something against a more scientific understanding of the world. It's not necessarily the case that that which, that, that which is more objective, you know, that what that which we can all agree on is necessarily better. It might also sometimes be that actually that which is a little bit more chaotic, is a little bit more unstable, is a little bit more in flux, might also be more generative. Uh, and then I, I guess the ideal would be to uh, have bring those to an opponent processing again. So I really like the the description you gave of that. Well, it sounds like from what, the way you're describing Nietzsche when he talks about reality, he's thinking of reality as being what we're surrounded with. Right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, and of which we're also a part ourselves. Yeah. 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 Um, where the way I understand, I mean, I think this is the way I've always thought about it in my simplistic way, but I, I think it's also the way that Dallas Willard talks about it is mm -hmm. that um, we are, we are embedded basically in two realities, the, the one mm -hmm. that is visible to us right now, but there's also an unseen reality and the unseen reality is, is actually the real reality <laughs> and what we're in right now. Yes, it can be uh, it can be twisted and, you know, it yeah. can be uh, all the things that you said that Nietzsche was concerned about. But that's because it it's this um, imperfect um, human observed reality that we are in right now and not the perfect reality of God's beautiful kingdom, which yeah. is right here next to us maybe just one particle off i don't know <laughs> yeah and and at any moment um we can yeah we can have moments where we see the other reality that we're embedded mm -hmm. in yeah i would say like and, and this is also i think it can be a valuable criticism of nietzsche so i think he would be concerned with a certain interpretation of what you just said which is like very similar to um 
platonic understanding of reality is like you know we have the eternal uh, world of the of, of of the eternal forms, and then we have let's say the the sensible world, which is changing, which is in flux. Um, and if we're not careful with the interpretation, we'd say like, okay, so this world is basically awful and that world is amazing, but mm-hmm. you know, we don't live there. And so if we do it in that simplistic interpretation, which is mm-hmm. how some Christians take it to be, you know, like that this world is bad and only mm-hmm. that world is good. Um, yeah, we risk not valuing the life we have right now. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think in the better understanding of Plato and for your sake also of, um, a Christian understanding of reality is to say like, yes, but everything in this life is profoundly animated and nurtured by that world. Right. So it's, so, so it's, and that's, and the best moment is when we're able to see that it actually connects in that way that it's like, Oh, okay. Actually in this world, like in looking at it, I can see something of that eternity and otherwise we risk losing that. Um, and I think Nietzsche would well, be concerned. Which is, like, okay, which is exactly yeah. how we come to be prepared for that that eternal world is by um, by dwelling in this world richly, mm-hmm. right? And by by learning and and growing and confronting challenges and um, experiencing life in this world, and that's how we are growing and being prepared for for right. the eternal world. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean we have we have to um we have to be aware of mm-hmm. the glory that is all around us. Yeah. 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 And I uh, and I think that that's just um that's just um something that's very central to existentialist thought. So also Kierkegaard and to Sartre and Camus is just to at least not take the um the afterlife for granted let's just um for now just take for granted what's here and just focus on that because we simply you know like we can believe in it but we don't know what will happen when we die this is i think an issue that everyone who believes uh and people who don't believe even though interestingly enough most atheists who don't believe know for sure that nothing will happen when they die which is very interesting because i think most believers like they don't know but they believe um, and that's why they're concerned, like, okay, let's at least focus on getting this life right. And then hopefully, mm-hmm. and I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, that if you live this way, this life the right way, in which this life is also fulfilled by it. So it's not like, you know, this was awful, but it prepares us for the better world. It's like, no, this was fully fulfilled by it. And if there's a better world, we're then also more fully capable of entering it. So um, I was taking some notes on the... Uh... The other video I sent you, so you brought up existentialism, so I thought this might be a good place yeah. to drop this in. Um, one of the things Dallas Willard said in his video on postmodernism and holiness, he mm. said, uh, modernism is about external control. Modernism is a rejection of the past as a guide to the present. Mm-hmm. But postmodernism is a continuation of the existential project of the emancipation of the individual from an imposed identity. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and he thinks that that's a very good thing, that, mm-hmm. that the individual does need to be emancipated from an imposed identity. And mm-hmm. that 
part of the problem of the, the church in the modern era was to try to impose identity mm-hmm. on the believer. It's a good point. Yeah, it's a, I, th- I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for that interpretation. And that's also, if you look at the way that someone like Foucault looks at power, he'll also describe that like up to modern systems, you know, you had like a proper top-down way of governing you know you had the king and he was ruling over his subjects and that's what happens in uh let's say our in the 20th century much more and then now in the 21st century where, where we're living is power becomes less top-down it becomes more horizontal and we start disciplining each other in some ways and that has advantages because there is new opportunities and potential for agency but it also has disadvantages that power becomes much more invisible like we don't actually notice when we're disciplining each other or disciplining ourselves whereas when there was a king we just knew like okay those are the guards i need to be careful now i need to you know pay attention um and i think in that same sense i i do think that that was a problematic understanding of of something being too top down. So I think in modernism, there is almost an ins- insistence of a, a very, I should say it, a very limited understanding of what truth can be. So it's like, so we still, we all submit to truth, but it's actually truth that is so severely weakened, which is why if you now hear discussions between, let's say, a scientist um, and, uh, well, either a postmodernist or someone else or, or, or a philosopher, or like even when you hear like conversation between uh, someone like Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, something like that. Uh, Sam Harris is pretty modernist. So he's like, well, it's just obvious. Like we have one reality and it's biological reality. And it's just this very much, at least I think from our perspective, a very watered down understanding of reality itself. So it's submitting to an authority, which is this truth, but the authority itself is weak. It's not life-giving. Um and then I think in this new space, and that's also why Peterson is actually far more postmodern than he'd like to admit. He's like, well, what do you mean by truth? So he opens up this possibility of like relating to it in a very new way. So you're not no longer necessarily in submission to, you know, this 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 weakened, watered down understanding of truth. And the risk of that, and that's also that's also why there's risks to existentialism and risks to this era, is that you'll just submit to a political power of some sort or you'll you'll submit to your own desires uh, and that's the risk but there is also a potential that oh now we see that we really have to rethink what truth is and then we can maybe find for instance connections in these ancient traditions again so i i think i agree with what uh dallas wheeler said that said said there by the way and i i by the way i really enjoyed is the 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 book you recommended i i managed to work through the abridged version and indeed the chapter you sent uh he's a wonderful (laughs) thinker yeah yeah um yeah chapter three is just i think amazing because he uh the way he lays out the the title of chapter three is what jesus knew Mm -hmm. and he says let's just assume that um if you're, if you're going to accept Christianity at any level, let's just assume that Jesus was smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> because you can't simultaneously think that Jesus um, is God and that he's not smart. <laughs> you, have, you have to think he's <laughs> smart. And so, yeah. so then you have to look at the things he said and say, if he's smart, then this must be the way that it is. And so wh- how is it? And then when he breaks it all down and um, 
looking at it from that standpoint, you can see this um, complete uh, picture of the way reality is in the kingdom of mm -hmm. God is uh, a much richer version of reality than than say Sam Harris or anybody else would have that's a strictly materialist perspective. Um, especially when he starts talking about, you know, I've talked many, many times with a physicist who has this idea about information becoming physical, which is very obvious to a person if you think about it, because, you know, if it's a computer program or if it's uh, somebody's idea of how to build an airplane, that information can become physical in the real world, but the information is inside the head first. Right. And, and then the um, it's that information is animated by the spirit within us. That's the spiritual, the, the mind and the will and the emotions are animating that idea so that that idea can become physical in the real world. Well, if all you believe in is the, the particles <laughs> then it's very difficult to explain where that animating spirit comes from that is creating everything that's around us, right? Yeah. Um, yeah agreed. Yeah, I, th I think it was really useful. I, and I think it's actually similar in some ways to, you know, the, the whole biblical lectures. Like they started from this idea like, well, maybe we could actually learn something from Genesis. So it's like, so we start to look at Genesis again to be like, oh, maybe there's actually something there that we don't know yet. And the same thing is, is indeed like the way that he presented it was really like, oh yeah, Jesus was actually kind of so radical that you just have to be like, oh yeah, he really knew what he was talking about in some ways. And also that, I don't know, like there was this emphasis and, and for some reason, like you, you hear about this so many times if you have a history in uh, Christian thinking. And at the same time, it keeps surprising you that Jesus really like, don't focus on the rules, right? Like, don't focus, like the rules are just, uh, the rules are this way of diminishing something because if we focus too much on the rules, we think we're good people by, you know, by following the rules, but actually maybe in our hearts, we're not yet transformed. And this is actually just to connect it back to a previous part of the conversation, I think Nietzsche would totally agree. It'd be like, you know, if you're so focused on the rules, that's actually this resentment morality where it's like, I'm following the rules and they're not, so I'm good and they're not. But then you're actually not transformed from the inside. So mm -hmm. I think it was so profoundly beautiful to uh, to go through that again. So I totally see that. And then as to your, like your second point on the inform information becoming, uh, I think, material was it what was it, what physical. you said i mean he uses or, physical, but yeah right yeah yeah no and, and that's uh in that same way um that's also a very platonic understanding right like that there's these these aspectualizations and they end up having physical manifestations and that's why uh if you read like the it's, it's very interesting if you look at someone like uh whitehead he actually makes the claim that plato's timaeus was a far better model of understanding I, th I think was it whitehead or heisenberg i'm not sure maybe maybe both of them said something similar but that plato's timaeus was a far better model for understanding our current observations of quantum mechanics than the scolium by newton which was a far more recent work so you think you think it, it, it would be more up to date but actually what we find now you know like in quantum mechanics is like well, it's much more about probabilities and about certain mathematical properties, which seem far closer to like, let's say a platonic understanding where it's mathematical properties that structure the material 
which is in our world. And therefore, indeed, that it is starting with these nominal ideas, which then are able to uh, have manifestations in the world in which we live. So I think that's a really beautiful understanding. And I actually think there's some good reasons to think that it might be true. Well, I did well, a while back. I started reading the book of John, trying to read it in the in the uh, interlinear version so that I could look at the Greek and the English at the same mm. time, because I'm not a student of Greek. But but when you do that, the first um, the first chapter of the book of John is mind blowingly close to um, quantum physics. <laughs> Elaborate, and, please. Like I'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. It also reminds me when I was in graduate school back in the 80s, one of the class, I, my major was linguistics when I was in graduate school. But one of the classes I had to take was uh, I had to have one classical literature class to complete the master's. And so I picked Milton and mm. uh, we were doing it was a small seminar of five students with a teacher. And we were doing Milton's Paradise Lost, which was amazing, yeah. amazing experience. But one of the guys that was in there was a guy who was working on his doctorate in quantum physics, and he had to have a literature class. And so he had mm. come in and he just kept going off. This is mind blowing. He said, this is quantum physics right here in Milton. <laughs> I took Amazing. copious notes during that whole seminar because this guy's mind just fascinated me so much. But then I lost the notes. So I can't remember what it was he said, but. <sighs> But the way that um, Milton talks about the, the creation of the universe and the way the universe is put together and everything just seemed to this guy to fit right into the whole aspect of, mm -hmm. of quantum physics. Right. But, That's amazing. But let's, let's pull it back a little bit here. I, I do want to get, I, I don't know how many more times I get to talk to you. So I want to ask <laughs> another question. One of the quotes that Dallas Willard said, and I don't know if this has anything to do with Nietzsche or not, but he said he uh, he was quoting a guy named Ernest Barker, who yeah. said the core of democracy is choice and not something chosen. And uh, he wasn't necessarily quoting that as saying this is a good thing. He was just quoting it. OK, mm -hmm. but it made me think that part of where we're at today is that we have magnified choice to such an extent that we have so many choices now that we have no way to make a choice. Right. Yeah. Um, if you just think about supermarkets, you used to go in and there would be one or two kinds of dish soap and one or two kinds of bread and one or two, you know, you, you had some choices and you could make a choice and pick something and take it home. Now you go into a supermarket and there would be an entire shelf of, 15 different kinds of dish soap and it's like how do I make a decision you know yeah and it comes down to I think the point that Willard was trying to make is that we put ourselves in a prison if we say that freedom is freedom to have anything we want because then we have no idea what we want and so then what good is the freedom basically we're in a prison because now we have so many choices so many options but no way of knowing what it is we really want. So I don't know if that right. ties into Nietzsche at all. I'm not sure if it ties into uh, Nietzsche. I think he is like he was very critical of our notions of free will. But that's again, that's, you know, I said this dual aspect of Nietzsche. It's the second aspect where, um, you know, like there's the story of the lambs and the birds of prey. Um, 
according to him, this was in that story, you can find a, an analogy that the lambs more or less invented free wills. Like, you know, the birds of prey, they could not eat us, but they eat us like they choose to. Whereas from the birds of prey perspective, they just, just do it. Like they don't think about wanting to do it. It's just like they just want it and then they do it. So there's no free will happening. So he's actually saying our notions of free will came about in some ways as a mechanism to understand our weakness because we want to project like hey you could also not do that and it's actually been useful for other things but that's why he's very critical of it because he thinks like okay yeah it it also gives this impression that we're this you know that we're super free to do whatever we want and even if something like free will exists which i think actually there's many good arguments for but if it does like it's obviously not like that you could do whatever you like like i can't choose to become a tiger right now like it's always bound within uh, uh, specific domains and then we can argue okay what are the domains in which that is bound uh, and that's for this one I do think that's so interesting because we we always tie that notion of free will in some ways to Christianity I know at least many uh, people do but this notion of free will is far more capitalist right like it's this understanding of just you know, pick and choose whatever you like. And then also with with that ties into our current understanding of democracy. It's just whatever you want, you can you you can you could choose whatever you like. And that's really the problematic notion because it implies no sense of first being in some way determined or at least informed, let me put it that way, by certain virtues which would allow you to make a good choice in the first place. But the ironic thing is the more we are determined by certain virtues the less free we are in some ways, but also the more free we are. So it depends on what you mean then by freedom. But in terms of that, just freedom to choose whatever you want. If I'm fully determined by justice, then I'm not so free to be unjust, you know, but it might be that in that contextualization, I feel more free because I'm actually doing something that I can continuously do without falling back into or sliding back into, um, let's say, feeling super bad about myself it's just like it's this continuum of 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 acting according to how i would want to act but at the same time it's fully determined by a certain virtue and that's what complicates this question so much well uh, willard sure. says yeah. that his definition of freedom would be like um is it's not the freedom to sit in your mother's basement and eat cheetos while you're playing video games <laughs> but it's the freedom that it's the freedom that you can see when you see a concert pianist sit down to play right. a symphony right um and i have a, i have a friend who's a concert pianist who travels all over the world playing symphonies and mm. um when she sits down to play at the piano there is tremendous freedom exactly right? yeah. yeah but she rehearses six hours a day mm. and has her entire life. And she's right. 50 years old now. She still rehearses six yeah. hours a day. That freedom is bought at the cost of sitting your butt down on the piano bench yeah. playing for six hours a day, right? At the cost of discipline. Yeah. And that's, I think, in uh, so the recent talk of Bishop Barron, I'm not sure if you watched it, but it's at the, at the ARC conference, but he also discusses the concept of freedom. And he also says, like, you know, you're perfect. You can be, he says, like, I'm perfectly free in the English lang language right now, but I wouldn't be so free in speaking French to you right now. And that would take some skill and some time to acquire freedom there. But that would also mean that, like, to discipline myself in such a way. 
Um, so you're more free in the English language than I am at the moment, but I'm more free in the Dutch language than you are. And in that same sense, you can definitely compare that to musical skills. And that does tie into Nietzsche's notion of will to power, that if we, you know, if we're able to express that thing, which let's say there's a problematic notion for several reasons, but I'll use the word anyways, which authentically belongs to ourselves. So uh, that might be different per individual, but that thing in which you have to explore your own potential, if you work that out and if you actualize that potential, that's when you express your will to power. And that's actually when you experience life as most meaningful and likely when you experience yourself as most free, because otherwise you're just bound by these frustrations of not being able to live in the way you like. But you like, like you can see how just language by itself, it complicates our um, ability to make this very clear at the moment. Well, the way you just described that, that sounds actually like quite a positive attribute. But I take it that there are complications with that as well. So, um, Well, because he also problematized the notion of free will, he'd say, okay, what, what is it you want? Like, you don't know what you want. So like Nietzsche is also, and I already mentioned, he's like the first proto uh, psychoanalytic thinker in, in some sense. Um, he says like, he says we're not transparent to ourselves. And that's why one of his most famous quotes, I mean, he has many, but this is one of them is um, become who you are having found out what that is. So it's like, so that's already a paradoxical space statement to become who you are because you've, still have to become apparently who you are which suggests that okay you don't know yet who you are you have to figure that out so you can only be that like after you figure out what it is that you become and then maybe you can find out what you want but that also means that often when we're acting in the present we might not be acting on our own self-interest because maybe it's like our future self-interest and maybe that actually has the best interest for us in mind but that's always very difficult and i think that's also typical of nietzsche like Maybe for some people who are not introduced to Nietzsche before, this will all sound very confusing, but that's also because Nietzsche is sort of purposefully um, trying to contradict himself because he, do he doesn't want this just one exclusive, um, I should say it, concise explanation of his ideas. He wants there to be tension, just like he said there was a productive tension in the Apollonian and Dionysian. One of the difficulties that jumps out at me as you're talking about this conundrum that he puts himself in is that how, how, how do you ever move forward? How do you ever do anything? If, if you have to yeah. question everything all the time, then, then you have no, I mean, it's kind of like when Jordan Peterson talks about being at the threshold of the next moment, being confronted by um, an infinity of choices and completely mm. immobilized by that, unless you have, a higher goal that is going to organize that set of choices in front of you. It's going to constrain yeah. or limit the field from which you get to choose. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, so as I already said at the start, like my fascination for him is not unlike my fascination for Walter White in Breaking Bad or Tony <laughs> Soprano and the Sopranos. Like I also know that eventually he ended up having a mental breakdown. And I do think that's fairly related to his, philosophical ideas that even though i think there's something to be said for you know being brave amidst change 
because that's let, let's be honest like there's a lot of change happening right now and all of us need to be brave in the face of that mm-hmm. uh, and we shouldn't deny the fact that there is change in this world and that therefore you know we need to cultivate our character in such a way that we can withstand that and at the same time he was so convinced of that that any stability was suspect you know any stability at all became suspect at some point and then it's hard to see what really remains of reality and especially in his later um years when he was living he became just profoundly lonely so then you know the stable relationships that you at some point had to maybe keep you a little bit more grounded mm-hmm. are then also lost and then it's just just the dionysian aspect at the at the expense of everything else so i think it he has a valuable project and really trying to revive both of them and also seeing the value in stability in indeed this groundedness and this mm-hmm. higher ideal but he ends up just moving towards the exclusive position of flux in, in his later years which is very mm. unfortunate mm. well that's so so the last question i had and i don't know do you have time for one more question? uh yeah yeah i have some time yes okay i'll try to make it as brief as possible <laughs> um, no need to. so there's apparently an idea in nietzsche i started watching a video about this i didn't finish the whole video although it's very interesting is that forgetfulness is an active and positive force. He had this idea about forgetfulness being an active and positive force. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a frame of why I'm asking the question, because I'm very interested in entropy. And uh, I've had many conversations with physicists and, and uh, biologists about the concept of entropy, which is way more complicated and interesting than one might think. (laughs) Um, And my physicist friend says that one of the way that he thinks, one of the ways that he thinks about entropy is that it's a kind of forgetfulness. And it's a forgetfulness that sort of allows space for, um, for new things to happen. It's very interesting. And so I wondered if um, you could talk about Nietzsche's idea about forgetfulness and Mm. maybe we could find some intersections. Yeah. When I was listening to the video, the light bulb started going off. Yeah, Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I should uh, just emphasize that Nietzsche always, like he called himself a psychologist. So for him, kind of similar to Peterson almost, like that he was interested in explaining uh, things in terms of human motivations. That's really what interested him. So I'm not sure if I could give you like a cosmic answer from a Nietzschean perspective. Oh, no, I don't need a cosmic answer. I just want Nietzsche's Mm. Nietzsche's answer. Yeah. No. um, So we've discussed the notion of like resentment uh, throughout this. And he actually thinks that if you have a good memory, (laughs) that might actually be a sign of resentment. So it might be that you have not dealt with things in your past that you're still profoundly resentful about and actually if you're if you don't have a good memory then that just shows that you know the past is not so relevant to you right now it's like you're seeing each day with with new eyes and you're able to just go into the world with you know um, new motivations and that's all because you're taking it in uh, in the moment and you're not living in the past so there's something uh, there's something very brave and and useful about forgetfulness. Uh, and he actually thinks that, yeah, like, and we sometimes hear these stories of 
people like confronting their childhood bullies or something like that. And that just shows how actually profoundly unhappy they've been for all their lives because they've lived in this shadow of just, you know, just this uh, ha having been bullied by this person maybe 40 years ago. And there's something to that. But at the same time, maybe that bully didn't care about it at all. And maybe that bully forgot about it already. Maybe that bully uh, therefore is living a better life. So there's something to be said for the positive potential of not living in the past and forgetfulness, even though it sounds like a negative thing, actually being a positive thing because it demonstrates that we're profoundly relating to the present and the future and what's ahead as opposed to what's constantly in the past. That would be a short answer, but yeah, I'm curious if that brings up any connections. That does point up what he's talking about. If, if the aspect of forgetfulness is that it allows you to move into the future without carrying this weight along with you it mm. opens up more a more of a creative opportunity right <clears throat> yeah yeah and it was also concerned by the way just on a more societal level that um you know this is like the whole death of god notion that there are still certain elements it's it's not so easy that you know when people stop believing in god that therefore god no longer has a as a force um so he's also like okay we're also not able to easily forget as a society and that can be dangerous because then we start to um how should i say it we start misjudging like we start to delude ourselves about what we actually believe in because we say we believe in this thing but actually we're still profoundly influenced by this thing in the past so therefore he also, he also says in that sense it's like forgetfulness can then also be a force to be really really be like okay no i have to to leave that behind me and I have to move on to the new thing in life. So it can also not just be like something that happens, occurs to you, but actually something that you want to place into your life. And now that's in comparison to God, but I think that can also be to much more hopeful values, let's say. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's super interesting. <clears throat> I'm going to percolate on that because one of the things that, um, one of the aspects of entropy, and I think I've got this right, I, I could be wrong because I'm also not a scientist, is that <clears throat> entropy is a measure of the um, free energy that is still available for work mm. or of the free energy that is that is no longer available for work or something. It, anyway, entropy is a measurement. Um, so entropy isn't actually a thing. It's just a measurement. So in that sense, you could think of also, you could think of forgetfulness as being a kind of a measurement. And when I think about measurement, it, it starts to stack up into uh, a kind of a hierarchy almost where the ideal is always a judge. Mm -hmm. Judge measures, <laughs> right? So... Um, or, or we measure ourselves against the ideal and therefore we become our own judge because we are measured against this ideal. So if um, entropy is a measurement, then maybe it's a, an, an aspect of how something lines up against the ideal. So, mm. And so I'm, I'm going to percolate on that a little bit. Yeah, that's fascinating. Nietzsche, by the way, he also he's also very explicit about that notion that every uh, ideal is necessarily a judge. That's like he says something similar himself, and also like he calls 
Dionysus at some point to judge because he he reintroduces Dionysus as this new ideal, and therefore he says like now Dionysus has come down to judge us, and that's that then relates back to the start of this conversation where we talked about the hammer, right? It's like we start to see where there are any cracks. So I really like how we've come full circle in this conversation. It's very interesting, and I really I'm really impressed by like that by how many things you don't have, uh, let's say, a trained background in, and nonetheless you are interested in it and therefore you're able to relate all these very seemingly specific ideas to all these widely like different aspects such as art and then physics so like i'm very much impressed by it well it's because i don't know anything um it allows me to be a little bit brave about drawing comparisons that maybe aren't there but at the same time it gives me something to um right kind of uh, ways of thinking about things. Yeah. And I mean, how would you ever know otherwise if you wouldn't venture out there, right? Yeah. So so maybe maybe to finish up, we should quote something from Dallas Willard since that's where we started from. Um, Good, yeah. Here's one I like. This is... Uh, in this chapter three, what Jesus knew. He says, uh, he was not speaking metaphorically or abstractly. The same is true when Jesus chided Nicodemus, who took himself to be a teacher in Israel for not understanding the birth from above, the receiving of a superhuman kind of life from the God who is literally with us in surrounding space. To be born from above in New Testament language means to be interactively joined with a dynamic unseen system of divine reality in the midst of which all of humanity moves about, whether it knows it or not. And that, of course, is the kingdom among us. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, uh, at the very end of the chapter, he says, uh, at the literally mundane level, Jesus was the master of molecules. He knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make it wine. That knowledge also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. He could create matter from the energy he knew how to access from the heavens right where he was. All these things show Jesus's cognitive and practical mastery of every phase of reality, physical, moral, and spiritual. He is master only because he is maestro. Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. <laughs> That's great. That's great. If ever, by the way, if ever you get the chance to uh, talk to my dad, who my brother also has conversation with, because he's like, he is just a specialist on the whole of Nietzsche's life. He actually tries to treat, let's say, jesus as much as possible as possible as a human individual um, and just try to understand from his perspective like what must that have been like to grow up in that time and have those expectations laid upon you and that understanding so it'd be interesting to have like a contrast with because i think you know it's almost like like he would say okay well nietzsche was also very unsure about certain things uh, and he was trying to figure stuff out so it would be interesting to see those two perspectives and uh, how they line up together but that's something for a, a wholly different conversation obviously 
Well, maybe all three of you should come on sometime. <laughs> have a free for all. <laughs> I'd love that. Yeah, that sounds good. Amazing. So much, Aaron. This has been really great. I really, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Okay. Have a great day. Yeah. Thank you. You too.